John chapter 1. John chapter 1, our text this morning begins in verse 35 and extends to verse 51. As you're turning, I'll just say I've been really glad over the last several weeks we have been in John's gospel. Uh, I need Jesus over and over and over again. I need to be led to him. I need to be encouraged to trust in him. I was in my morning prayers this morning uh, as I was preparing uh, to preach the, the line from the hymn uh, on Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. This line kept just going through my head over and again. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope instead. When, when our lives are shaken so that everything else falls away, what do we have left? Who do we have left? We have Jesus. He then is all my hope and stay. He's our rock and our refuge, our strong tower. He's the one to whom we must be led again and again. And that's what this passage is doing. It's actually inviting us this morning, isn't it? To come and to see and to, to follow and to worship. But in order for us to do that this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do come to you this morning, and we beg that you would come and that you would meet with us. Indeed, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take your word, which you moved the writers to write. Indeed, as the Holy Prophets spoke, as they were borne along by the Spirit, as your word says. So, so you did. You, you caused John to be borne along by your very power, so that what he wrote is, in fact, the very word of God. Holy Spirit, we pray you would come and take this word of God and use it in our hearts and lives this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? 
Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Daddy, Daddy, come and see. Come and see. Now, when my kids were younger, it always gave me great joy to hear those words, to hear them inviting me to come and see. It could have been Sam upstairs in his bedroom, having just put together his Saturn V Lego rocket kit, inviting me to come and see. Or Liz, having just put on dress-up clothes and put herself in some arrangement. Drew, after he had built his workbench all by himself when he was 12 years old. Or Ben, with his ball and glove, wanting me to come and, and, and go throw the ball with him. As a dad, when you hear those words, come and see, you can't possibly say no, because those words, they're actually an invitation into your child's world, into your child's heart. Twice in our passage this morning, we hear this invitation, don't we? Come and see. Jesus says it in chapter 1, verse 39, come and you will see. Andrew says it, or Philip says it to Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 46. But, but really, we've been hearing this invitation to come and see over and again in this gospel. Uh, we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or even again, here in this passage, in chapter 1, verse 36, Behold the Lamb of God. Each time, with those, that emphasis upon seeing, we're, we've actually been invited. We've been invited to come to see Jesus' glory. To see him as the Lamb of God who cleanses us from sin. To see Jesus as the very means of our forgiveness. Over and again, we've been confronted and invited to come and see, but this morning, the invitation is to you personally to come, to come into Jesus's world, to draw near to Jesus's own heart. Jesus is calling you this morning. He's calling you to come, to come to the only one who can satisfy your heart. He's calling you to come so that when your world gets shaken, whether it's being shaken right now, whether it'll be shaken at some future point, when, when that moment comes and all, everything else is taken away, you'll find you're clinging to Jesus, but better that Jesus is clinging to you. Jesus is inviting you this morning to come to him, to draw near to him. He's calling you to come and see. And especially to see Jesus in two ways. First this morning, we're we're invited to come and see Jesus as, as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist is the one who, who says it again. Unlike in verse 29, which we were looking at last time, this morning what we see here is that 
he actually has an audience. Verse 35 tells us that John was standing with, with two of his disciples, two of his followers, two of those who've attached themselves to John as learners, those who were learning from him as a master teacher. And as they're standing there with John the Baptist, Jesus walks by. And, Jesus, and, and John the Baptist says to his disciples, perhaps points as he does so, look, behold, see the Lamb of God. And the followers see, and they hear this, and it doesn't seem like it takes them any time at all to follow. Actually, they literally follow, don't they? They don't just spiritually or metaphorically follow. They actually start walking after Jesus, and he actually turns around, and he sees them following them. And he says to them, what are you seeking? That's actually a really important question in the Gospels. Twice else in John's Gospel, a form of that question will come up. In John chapter 18, when Jesus is in Gethsemane with his disciples, and the and the crowd, the mob, and the authorities come to arrest him. Twice in John 18, in verse 4 and verse 7, Jesus says to the mob, whom are you seeking? In John chapter 20, as Mary Magdalene is in the garden tomb, desperately looking for Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? In our text, the question is slightly different, what, not whom. But really, the fact of the matter is, is, is everyone is seeking something. You and I, we, we are seeking something or someone. You may be here this morning, not even realizing it, but you are seeking something. And you're trying to, to fill that something with money or power, or sex, or influence, or fame, or security, or significance. You're, you're trying to fill that, that longing, that seeking with something. Others of you are here seeking someone. You're seeking a spouse, a family, a friend, a community, some place to belong. You're seeking someone. You and I, we're on this seeking quest, because whether we know it or not, our, our we have eternity embedded in us. We have eternity hardwired into us. And as Augustine put it in his confessions, we're restlessly seeking. Restless because we have this, this God-sized hole in our heart. And we're desperately trying to fill it with something or someone. Jesus is asking you this morning, what are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? The only one who can actually fill that hole in your heart is this one who is called the Lamb of God. That's, that's what these two men who began following Jesus had heard. That's why they began following him. John the Baptist had pointed him out. Behold, see, look, here's the Lamb of God. And, and so they, they begin to follow. What are you seeking? We want to know where you're staying, Lamb of God. Come and see. Jesus invites them to come and see, not just his place, but him. What is it that they learn about him? They learn that he's the Lamb of God. They learn that he's, in fact, the one that had been promised to Abraham so, far, so long ago. This one whom God had provided for himself. In fact, God provides himself as the Lamb for the sacrifice, my son. 
They learn that he's the Lamb of God who's not just the substitute, but the one who causes the, the wrath and curse of God to pass over so that, so that they might be delivered through this very Lamb's blood. They might be delivered from the wrath of God to come. They learn that this Lamb of God is in fact the atoning sacrifice for their sins. The one who cleanses from every sin and all sin. Not just small sin, but big sin. Not just this sin, but that sin, all sin. Jesus is that Lamb of God. And they learn that Jesus is in fact the Lamb of God who's the willing sacrifice for sin. Who doesn't go to the cross grudgingly, kicking and dragging his feet, but goes as a willing sacrifice. In other words, they learn as they are there with Jesus, as they come to see him, that this Lamb of God is a Savior. He's a Savior. But not just a Savior among many Saviors. He's actually offered to them as their Savior. But not just theirs. Because as I said at the beginning, Jesus is here. Jesus is inviting you to come. He's inviting you to come and see him as the Lamb of God, as Savior, as your Savior. But not just as the Lamb of God. But he also is actually inviting you to come and see him as the Messiah. That's ultimately how Andrew responds. He goes and he finds his brother Simon. And what is it he says? Look at chapter 1, verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now, why does, why does John say that? What does it mean? Why is it such a big deal? How, why is it that when Andrew goes to find Peter, the way he identifies who Jesus is, is this way. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. Well, the word Messiah literally means anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, there were a variety of, of people who in their offices were anointed. Priests were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Kings were, were anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil. But this anointing with oil was actually meant to symbolize that they were anointed with and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So priests empowered by the Holy Spirit. Prophets empowered by the Holy Spirit. Kings empowered, anointed with the Holy Spirit. Eventually in the Old Testament, those various offices came to be focused particularly in, a, in an anointed one, a single anointed one, a single Messiah who would be a king. But he'd be more than a king. He would be a forever king ruling over a forever kingdom. In Psalm 2, that psalm, when you read it this afternoon, perhaps, as part of your Lord's Day observance, when you read Psalm 2, what you'll find is the kings of the earth are, are rebelling against God and his rule. And when God laughs at them, he laughs at them because he has he is installed his anointed one, his Messiah, on Zion's hill. And then he says, today I have begotten you. You are my son. This anointed one who's on Zion's hill is in fact the very son of God. And he in fact rules the nations. Though the kings seek to rebel against him, yet the anointed one, the Messiah, who's in fact God's son, rules over the nations. So get this, when Andrew's saying to Peter, 
we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. What he's actually saying is that this Lamb of God is the forever king. This Lamb of God is God's anointed one. This Lamb of God is, in fact, the one whom God had promised long ago, the true king who would rule over the nations. In other words, we found the one who is the Lord. And that's what Jesus is inviting you to see him as this morning. Not just as your savior, who rescues you from death, who rescues you from the wrath and curse of God, who gives you entry into heaven, who pardons all your sins, although that is all gloriously true. But Jesus invites you this morning to see him as your Lord. To see him as your king. Because friends, if you see this Jesus as Lamb of God and as Messiah, if you see him as your Savior and your Lord, then you will not only come and see him, but you will come and follow him. You will come and follow him. I mean, that's what happens, isn't it? When Jesus goes to another town in Galilee, he finds Philip and he, he shows Philip that he is in fact the one who commands. It's really simple what happens, isn't it? Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. It's a simple command. There's no indication that, that Philip even thought about disobeying the command. The implication is, is that Jesus commands, follow me. And Philip gets up and follows him. And that's because this one who commands Philip to come and follow is in fact both Savior and Lord. Is in fact both the Lamb of God and the Anointed One, the Messiah, God's King. I wonder this morning, do you think about Jesus as the one who commands you? Who has the right, the authority as your Lord to command you? Even more, do you think of yourself as someone who is called to obey him? I mean, after all, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's an imperative. That's a command. But do we obey do we follow him? Jesus tells us to forgive not seven times, but 77 times. That's a command. But do we obey? Do we follow him? Jesus tells us, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or, nor about your body, what you will put on. Friends, that's a command. Do not be anxious. Do we obey? Do we follow him? Jesus tells us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's a command. Do we obey? Do we follow him? Now, you know all those things. None of those verses were, were unfamiliar to you. You've heard those verses again and again. Undoubtedly, when I read them to you, you nodded your head and said, yes, we know this is what Jesus commands. And yet somehow we've taken these commands and we've put them in this ethereal spiritual layer way above our lives that doesn't really intersect with Monday through Saturday. We don't really see these as, as, as commands we are to obey in real time. 
in our real lives. Because really the fact of the matter is, is, is we hate our enemies and we try to get back at those who persecute us. We don't forgive, but in fact we hold on to our grudges and our bitterness or even worse, we just bail out and we leave and we break relationships when we, when we feel threatened or harmed in some way. We, we, in fact, are profoundly anxious, seeking control over every aspect of our lives. And not only do we not in, deny ourselves, we delight to indulge ourselves. And we, we follow our own way over and again. That's what we do, isn't it? Monday to Saturday. But for Philip, when he heard Jesus say, come and follow me, he obeyed because he knew the one who commanded him. That this one who commanded him is Lamb of God and Messiah. This one who commanded him was his Savior and his Lord. And friends, when you know Jesus this way, when you see Jesus as someone who's able to command you, then you say, Jesus, command what you will and give what you command. Command what you will and I will follow as long as you give me the power to obey you. Because you are my king. You are the one who commands. For Philip, he recognized Jesus had the right to command him because he was, in fact, the one who came. The one who came. That's ultimately what Philip says to Nathaniel. He goes and he finds his friend in verse 45. And he says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now what does that mean? Why does he invoke Moses and the law and the prophets? What is he trying to say? Well, law and the prophets is a, was a shorthanded way of summarizing the entire Old Testament. And what, what Philip is saying here is that the entire Old Testament, the entire Hebrew Bible, was actually pointing forward to this one who would come. This one who would be a prophet like Moses this one who would be a, a better priest than Aaron, one of the order of Melchizedek, one who would be the king that God coveted with David to bring, that, that this one who would come would be like Melchizedek, a royal priest, like, like Moses, a prophet judge, who would be wiser than Solomon and holier than Samuel and more faithful than Josiah or Jehoiada. Philip was saying, he's come. This one has come. The one that all the Old Testament had for, he's here. And that's why we must follow him. This Jesus, he's, he's more than a teacher. He's more than an aspirational idea, more than a moral example. He's Savior and Lord. He's Lamb of God and Messiah. And that's why we must follow him. But Jesus is inviting you to do more than follow and to do more than see. This morning, Jesus is here and he's inviting you to come and worship him. To come and worship him. You see, when Nathaniel comes toward Jesus, what does Jesus say to him? He says, behold, look, see, verse 47, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. There's a kind of bookending here, isn't there? Verse 35, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. Here, Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, what's that about? Why does Jesus say that? Well, it's more than simply a commentary on Nathaniel's character, as though he was a straight shooter, as though he had no filter. You know, thought comes in, out it comes out of his mouth. He's not twisting and turning or somehow deceiving. No, I think it's more than that. Now, I think the language here, behold, an Israelite, 
in whom there's no deceit. Who was the first Israelite? Oh, that was Jacob. Right? Jacob's the one who gets the name Israel. And what was Jacob's character? Well, his name means heel grabber. It ultimately came to be known as deceiver. He was the one who was associated with lies and deceits, who cheated for birthrights and lied to his own father for blessings and went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Laban to manipulate and get his own way. But, but Jesus says of Nathaniel, you're not like your father, your father Jacob, your father Israel, who was a deceiver. No, you are the one who has no deceit and your response to me will be the response that Israel ought to have. John's already told us he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But Nathaniel will be an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And his response to Jesus will be the response that was proper and right. That was what God desired for his own people. What was the response? It was worship. Because Jesus says to Nathaniel, after Nathaniel questions, how do you know me? How do you know my character? Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that stuns Nathaniel. And it causes him to praise and worship Jesus, doesn't it? He says, Rabbi, verse 49, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now there's, there's a bookend to that confession of Jesus as son of God, king of Israel. It happens in John chapter 20. Do you remember what happens when Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection? Who's not there? Thomas isn't there. And the disciples go and they say, Jesus is alive. And what does Thomas say? Unless I see him, I see the nail prints in his hands, and I thrust my hand in his side, I will not believe. A couple days later, Jesus shows up and Thomas is there. He says to Thomas, what? Thomas, put your fingers in my nail prints. Put your hand in my side and believe. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. That confession, my Lord and my God, is actually met here at the beginning of John's gospel when Nathaniel, representing Israel and how Israel ought to respond, says of Jesus what? You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the Lord. You are God. You are the one that the Old Testament promised. You are the one that Psalm 2 speaks of. You are the anointed one who is in fact God's son. You are the forever king ruling over the forever kingdom. You have every right to command me, but even more, I have every need to adore you. You are my king. You are my God. But friends, that's why we worship Jesus. That's why our faith centers on him. The entire first chapter of John's gospel has been driving us to this. That Jesus is more than a man. He's more than a teacher. He's the word who is God, who is with God. He's the word became flesh. He's the only God in the bosom of the Father. He was before John. He was before him both in rank but also in time. He's the one who sees and knows us when we're under our fig trees, when we're rising up, when we're going back home, when we're going to sleep and we're getting up in the morning. This is who is God. It's Jesus. And our entire faith our entire religion centers right here. That your Jesus, whom you worship and adore, is in fact God. He's the God-man. The God became human. And because he is, he can save you. And because he is, he can command you. And because he is, we must fall before him and worship him. The angels do. The angels worship him. 
Because as Jesus himself is going to say, yes, he's the son of God, but what does Jesus call himself? The son of man. That's what he says at the very end. Verse 51, he says, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's two things there. Jesus has already identified Nathaniel as the true Israelite, the one who is better than his forefather Jacob. And so having mentioned Jacob in that way, he reaches to the most familiar scene with Jacob, what happens at Bethel, remember? Genesis 28. Jacob's on the run. He's made it to this town called Luz. It's going to be called Bethel after this scene. He's sleeping on the rock. He has this dream vision. And what happens in the dream vision? A ladder is let down from heaven. And it has its, its bottom on the earth. And it, its tops in the heaven. And the angels are riding up and down this ladder, this stairway to heaven. And what, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm the ladder. I'm the connecting point. I'm the God who became flesh. I'm the God who became man. Yes, I'm the son of God and the king of Israel. In fact, king of the nations. I'm son of God and son of man. That's who I am. That's why you must worship me. The angels adore me. The angels see me. The angels ride upon me because I connect heaven and earth. But there's another reason why Jesus uses this title, son of man. It's a reference ultimately to Daniel chapter 7. There, Daniel is having a vision of, of the nations in their advance. And one like the Ancient of Days comes and he puts his throne on the earth and he opens the books. And then Daniel sees in Daniel 7 verse 13, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days which was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. And that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. That's who Jesus says he is. He's the one who's been given all authority. He's the one to whom the nations belong. Yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he's the true king. The angels take note of him and they worship him. So should you and so should I. Jesus is inviting you to come this morning. To come and see him as he actually is, as your Savior and as your Lord. He's inviting you to come and follow him. To hear him command you in his word and for you to obey him. But friends, don't miss it. Jesus, Harris, Lord Jesus, is inviting you to come this morning to worship him. To adore him. Because friends, when everything in your life is shaken, everything is stripped away, the one thing needful... His name is Jesus. He's inviting you into his heart. Will you come? Let's pray with me. Father, as I said at the earlier service, these are just words. Unless you, by your spirit, take them and use them in our hearts and lives. I do believe that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. This is your word to us. You are inviting us to come to you as we come to this table this morning to behold the wondrous mystery, Lord, please stir our hearts. Stir our hearts this morning. Enter into those dark places, those empty places, those, that area that God sh shaped whole in our heart. 
and give us a taste of yourself so that we might leave this place knowing we've met with you, that you've been here, that your invitation to come to your heart was a real invitation, and in fact, you fulfilled it. Lord, grant us this, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.